Continuing uh, traveling through the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, but also they will be up on the screen. To do that, though, before we get into today's message, I want to again lay sort of the foundation or the context of where we find ourselves in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we need to remember and recognize that the author, who is unknown, some people would say that it might be Barnabas, others have said that perhaps Paul, but the way Paul writes uh, is different than how we see sort of the structure of Hebrews. Whoever this author is, is writing to encourage the church to continue persevering in Jesus Christ. And what we see through the book of Hebrews is this continual theme of Jesus is the best of the best. And because that theme is continuing, he is saying, why would you, after having been given what we have in Jesus Christ, turn to other things? Now, why is that the case? Well, what we discover is this book's been written about 30 to 35 years after Jesus has died, risen from the grave, and ascended into heaven. Things have occurred, but now the people of God are being persecuted. They're having a hard time. They're beginning to wonder and doubt if Jesus really is the best of the best. And because of that, they're turning back to Old Testament manners of worship and affirmation of their faith. And so what we see is the author starts off and he says, don't forget what you have in Jesus Christ. He comes with an argument saying that Jesus is better than the prophets. He then says that Jesus is better than the angels. He then moves forward and he says Jesus is better than Moses. And that's essentially where we're going to find ourselves today on the tail end of that argument. But what we have to remember is through this, systematically, the author is demonstrating why it's better. And so we think through this and we're like, well, sure, Jesus is better than those things. But let me ask you this question. When life is hard... When life throws challenges at you that are unexpected, when life throws a curveball to you that you did not put in place, where is your faith in Christ? Are you turning to other things? Is it a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of the world? Is it, you know what, Jesus was doing it for me for a while, but now that I'm out in the world and I'm doing my things and the world is hard, he really isn't cutting it anymore. And so I might take a little bit of Jesus, but a whole lot of this, or have you abandoned Jesus altogether? You see, the author is saying, don't move away from Christ. Don't turn to other things. And so we're on this part of Hebrews 4 where we're going to be talking about rest. Anybody like rest? Anybody need rest? You know, it's interesting. I was going to uh, speak about this today, and it's kind of fun how this all comes together. Um, after service today, we're going to be going home and kind of packing up, and uh, Parker and I are going to be heading to Wyoming. Um, he's going to be working there over the summer, and we've got about a 16 to a 17-hour drive ahead of us. And to be honest with you, I'm excited about that. I'm excited for some drive time with him. I'm excited to be able to get caught up. But I'm not going to lie to you. I'm looking forward to hopefully arriving at a hotel tonight at some point and getting some rest. 
I'm also looking forward to hopefully arriving to the house where my parents are tomorrow and getting some rest. We need it and we want it. It's part of our natural selves. But I also want to ask you a question. While we desire rest in that sense, how many of you desire a deeper rest? This sense that amidst everything that's going on, amidst the challenges of the world, amidst the uncertainties of the world, amidst the things that come upon you, maybe it's concerns over health, maybe it's concerns over finance, maybe it's concerns over a job, maybe it's concerns over our nation, whatever it might be, that you want a deeper inner sense of rest. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Interestingly enough, we're going to be kind of moving between two realities in rest. And that's one of the things that I want you to see and understand, because the author is speaking to essentially an already but not yet aspect of rest. And what do I mean by that? The author is saying, look, in Jesus, when you've placed your faith and trust in him, you are now adopted into God's family. You are a son or a daughter of a living king. You are no longer enslaved to death or sin. But not only that, you are now, because you're part of God's family, co-heirs in the kingdom of God. And that is promised to you. And so what we're speaking about is a rest that will come when we enter eternity in God's kingdom. But we're also speaking about a rest that we can have in God today. Knowing that despite what's going on in the world around us, we can be at peace or at rest with him. How many of you have seen someone who is obviously going through a challenging time, and yet you notice that they are at rest with God? I don't know about you, but I would want that. I pray that in moments where my life is going helter-skelter, that I can find that rest in God. Interestingly enough, one of the things is deep within us, deep within our DNA, for lack of a better word, there is a desire for rest. And I think Augustine of Hippo says it best. God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Think about that for a minute. The whole world is after finding rest. And the whole world is looking for rest in all the wrong places. We have been created to find our rest in God. And the reality is our hearts will remain restless until we find our rest in him. And so in that, if you've found your rest in him, why would you leave it for other things? 
That's the argument that we're seeing. Remember, we're coming off of the argument on Moses. And people are saying, hey, you know what? Jesus is okay. He's done his thing. But for whatever reason, it's not working out. So we're now going to turn back to these other things. They're turning back to the prophets. They're turning back to worshiping angels. They're turning back to the uh, structure of Moses. And the author is saying, look, Moses wasn't bad. But remember, we talked about the fact, and the uh, author builds this argument, that Moses is essentially the renter of the home. Okay? He is a steward of the house, and the house in this analogy was the people of God. He was pointing to the direction of God. Yes, he was a great leader. Yes, he did great things. But he wasn't God in the flesh. But then he says, Jesus, unlike Moses is the builder of the house and the owner of it. He's the one to talk to. He's the one to go to. And off that argument, he continues on and he builds this idea off of Psalm 95 that was written by David where he is demonstrating to the people who are reading what happened to the people of God when they were in the wilderness and they chose essentially to disobey God. So to lay the context of what's going on is the people of God, back in Moses' day, had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They had essentially been freed from the tyranny of Pharaoh, led out into the wilderness to the promise of a promised land. God said, I will do this for you. And so the people of God are all excited. They can't wait to get going. They do their thing. They're all mighty. And they're like, hey, we're getting out of Egypt. This is great. We're on our way. And in one hour, they get to the promised land. Uh Uh-uh. The promised land is promised. But it doesn't happen in the manner of how they want, when they want, and where they want it. Does that sound familiar for some of us? Oftentimes what we feel or what we think is that when we come to Christ, we're going to get everything that we want, how we want, where we want it, because God exists to serve us, to serve our desires, and serve our needs. And when he doesn't, like the people in the wilderness, they begin to grumble. In fact, it got so bad, and that's what the author is referring to. He's saying, look, you're going back to want to worship Moses? Well, let me remind you of what happened to the people of God when they were under Moses. They whined and they complained. They got to a point where they said, you know what, Moses? It would be better for us to have remained slaves in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. Now think about that. Essentially what they're saying is, you know what? It's better for me to remain in my sin to not have God around, to not have the ability to be part of God's kingdom because things temporarily right now are so bad, I just want to remain a slave in my sin. I don't want to be free from it. I don't want to be a brother or sister in Christ, and I certainly don't want to be a co-heir in his kingdom because I'm not getting what I want, how I want, when I want it now. And so they turn. And so the author is saying, remember what happened to these people because they didn't enter the promised land. 
He then continues on and he speaks essentially to the idea that only Joshua and Caleb were the two of the spies that entered the promised land. He speaks to that aspect off of Psalm 95 saying that 12 spies were sent out to investigate the land and they said the land is full of milk and honey. The land is good, but it's filled with giants. I don't know that we can get it. I don't know that we should go there. I don't know that it's ours. And they forget the promise of God. They forget that God says, it's yours. It's yours for the taking. It's already there. It's already under your possession. All you have to do is take it. And you look at that and you think, gosh, those guys were foolish, weren't they? They let a few big guys scare them from the promise. But let's think about this for a minute. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for those of you that are gathered here today, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the promise of God is there. The kingdom is ours. We possess it. For those of you that don't know Christ, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you receive that promise. It is yours for the taking. All you got to do is go reach out and grab it. That's it. And so often in our lives, what we do is, is we say, well, it's too hard. There's too many, and I'm going to put this in quotes, big guys in the land. Too many obstacles. It's too hard. It's not what I want. And we forget the promise that God has given. And so interestingly enough, we come into this point where the author is saying, look, don't lose out on entering into God's rest. Don't throw that away. You are this close, and yet you're turning to other things. And so this morning, as we see that we have been made to find rest in God, we're going to ask this question, how do we come to a point where we are able to enjoy true rest in God? I want you to just, in your hearts right now, ask yourself this question. Are you enjoying true rest in God? And let me just, let me kind of caveat this, okay? I know that several of you are going through challenges. I know you're going through hardships. I know that there are people that are struggling in relationships. I know that there are people that are struggling with health concerns. I know that there are people that are struggling with finances. I know that people that are struggling with all of that and more. But what I want to ask you is, amidst those struggles, are you enjoying true rest in God? Let's look at this for a minute. We're going to be reading again from Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. We're coming off this argument about Jesus being greater than Moses. And right at the start, we read, therefore. Now, before I continue reading, remember, whenever there's a therefore, we want to recognize that it is building off of what has been stated previously. So essentially what we are discovering is, hey, I'm giving you a warning against unbelief. I'm giving you a warning of not being like the people of Moses who had all of the promises and chose not to move forward to the land of promise because they had unbelief in their hearts. 
And then he says, don't forget, the promise is yours. And so then he builds this argument. He says, okay, now that we know this, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed entered that rest, just as God said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Quoting directly from Psalm 95. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we desire rest in God. We want rest in God. But my question is, is are we willing to move forward and trust God in order to have that rest? That's what's being spoken about this morning. And so one of the things that I want to show you in this, as we're going to look, we're going to kind of dive right into uh, verses 1 and 2. And the warning is simply this. Don't fall short of entering that rest by just hearing the gospel and not combining it with faith. It sounds fairly easy, doesn't it? But let me ask you this. Are you just listening to the Word of God? Because it's one thing to hear it. And what I'm going to tell you is, is even the demons hear the Word of God. It's a whole other thing to believe it or to combine it with faith. And that's what's being spoken of in this passage. Have you combined your hearing of the word with faith and trust in it? Now, let me throw this out to you as well. A lot of people will come forward, and I've said it before, how do I know that I'm saved? Okay, it's a great question. And I've said to you that my response will not be, have you prayed the prayer? Now, the prayer of salvation is important. We are saved by grace through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're saved by mercy. But my question is, is, well, are you walking with God? What evidence in your life is there of a changed life, a difference, a different trajectory? 
Because if your life has been changed and you're walking with him and you're persevering and you're trusting and walking him with, in faith, that is the very indicator indeed that you are saved. That's the solidifying aspect. Yes, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I'm not saying a works-based salvation. But you want to know that you are in Christ. You're continuing to walk with him. Or better yet, maybe another way to put it is, you're not in the wilderness yelling at God, saying it would be better for me to be back in Egypt than to be with you. And so one of the things that I ask is this. How many of you have started off well? How many of you have moved to Egypt in this analogy and jumped off and said, great, here we go, and you've gotten a few miles in and you've said, this isn't for me because God's not doing what I want. Yet all the time, as we see, God provided for his people and promised them that the land was theirs. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, interestingly enough, the author is saying, look, the promise of his rest is there. It stands. It is for you. And what we need to remember and recognize, it's there for you today. The promise of entering God's rest stands for us today. Maybe not tomorrow. And so because that promise still stands, then let us be careful that none of you are found to have fallen short of it. Now please recognize, remember in this, we're speaking to individuals who are essentially in the crowd, but they've never come to Christ. Okay, this is not speaking about losing your salvation. This is not something where if you've truly placed your faith and trust in Jesus, that all of a sudden, if you can't walk 20 miles, you're going to lose your salvation. What it is speaking about is, is that there are individuals who are part of the crowd, who look the part, who are excited about leaving Egypt, who can't wait to quote-unquote be part of the gang, yet they've never been part of it, i.e. Judas. But yet it's our call as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another to persevere and to remind one another that the mark of a believer is someone who perseveres through the challenges and the trials that are before them. Trusting the promises of who God is. Even when the world around them is not necessarily what they want or what they desire. In verse 2, for we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them. Think about this. In today's world, with all of the technology that we have, anyone can hear the gospel, or almost anyone. The challenge is, is in hearing the gospel, is there value to it? Meaning, hey, this is important. This is something that I need to hear. This is something that I need to recognize. 
that there is a God and his name is Jesus Christ and that he's come and he's lived and he's died on a cross to forgive me the debt that I owe to him. And by doing so, when I place my faith and trust in him, as we've seen earlier, I am free from being enslaved to sin. I am now part of the family of God, and Jesus is not ashamed to call me a brother or sister in his family. And because Jesus is not ashamed, that means I am a brother or sister in his family, and therefore, because God is king, I am co-heirs with Christ. You've just heard it. Lovingly, I ask, will you choose to ignore it? Or will you choose to combine what you have just heard with faith? And faith is an aspect of walking forward to something that we necessarily cannot see. Have you combined what you have heard with a faith and trust in God? Now let me throw this out to you. How often in life when we move forward and things don't go the way that we want, we move to solving the problem on our own. Anybody guilty of that? How's that going for you? Doesn't go very good, right? Yeah, amen. And so interestingly enough, Watchman Nee just says this quite simply, but it's very profound. He says, our rest lies looking into the Lord, not to ourselves. Whatever you're going through right now, yes, you need to move forward with action. I'm not saying that you just sit there and not do anything. But at the core of who you are, are you looking to the Lord for your rest? Or are you saying, God, get out of the way. Leave me alone. Let me figure this out. I'll call you when I need you. You see the difference? Pick up the phone, for lack of a better word, and your first call should be to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends that are gathered here this morning, if you want real rest, real rest is found in Jesus and looking to God. And for lack of a better word, having him be our first phone call. And then he continues on. After this strong warning, remember that you have to combine what you hear with faith. He then turns into the next couple of verses, and this is what we find. He first says, do not fall short of entering that rest by just hearing the gospel and not combining it with faith. But then also he says, remember, the work to enter the rest is done. And I'll explain that in a minute. The work to enter this rest is done. 
we enter by believing and trusting in Christ. And so in verse 3, he says, Now we who have believed, okay, passive, have entered that rest. Passive, final, complete. Don't miss this. Okay? That's where we discover, again, that this is not about the possibility of losing salvation. He says, now we, those that have believed, passive, done, have, complete, entered, period, no more need, that rest. Just as God has said. Just as God said, okay, so see this? It's a comparison. He also said, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So just as God has said, If you believe, you will enter my rest, he has also said on oath, Those who are disobedient, those who do not believe, will not enter my rest. So it's a comparative. If I can say this, I can say this. And the point that's being made is the authority of God and the sovereignty that he has. If you believe, you will enter my rest. If you don't and you disobey, you will not enter my rest. That's what's going on. And watch this. And yet... His work has been finished since the creation of the world. Okay, this is the already but not yet aspect. The writer takes us back and says, look, it's already been done. When God created the world and did all that he needed to do, and he had it all together, we're going to move in a moment to the aspect of on the seventh day he rested and said it was good. It's done. There's nothing more that needs to be finished. Already, but not yet. And so we continue on in verse 4. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And then what he does is he quotes Genesis 2.2. And so what the author is doing is he's taking the people back to remember the words of God that have been so clearly stated. And he says, essentially, almost humorously, I wouldn't say sarcastically, but humorously, he's like, you know, I think somewhere, right, then anybody that knows anything about what's going on would recognize this following statement. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Okay? But then comparatively again, he says, and again, in the passage above, to reiterate, okay, to prove the point of what's going on, quoting back to Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. 
So what the author is doing is he's doing a comparative contrast, comparative contrast to demonstrate the authority of God's word. If you believe and you trust, you will enter my rest. Just as God, it was all good, created the world, and on the seventh day he rested, comparative, just as he said. One more time, if you miss the point, if you do not believe, you will not enter my rest. But back up at the beginning of that part, What's being said is, don't forget the work is done. Don't forget that Christ has come, he has lived, he has died, he has risen from the grave. We are no longer dead to our sin. We are free in Christ when we have believed. We are a daughter or a son and we are co-heirs in his kingdom. There's no more work to be done. And why is that important? Because so often in our life, what happens when we believe Jesus and our lives go to hell? We either blame God or we think we're not doing enough. I need to do more. I must be doing something wrong. I can't rest. My life is a mess. I obviously am not doing enough. Maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that, maybe if I combine this with five more prayers, maybe if I do this with five more things, maybe if I do this with that aspect, maybe then my life will be better. Does that sound restful to you? No. Whatever life is, wherever you are in the wilderness, whatever the picture may look like, Good, bad, easy life right now, hard life right now. Is your rest in him? God, I trust you. I've placed my faith in you. I know you've died for me. I know that the promises stand true. I know that I'm a son or a daughter in your kingdom. I know that the kingdom is mine. I know that it's coming. I know that you will return. I know that you've promised that. And so I'm resting in your promise. Because the work is done. Present rest with the promise of future rest. One of the things that I want to encourage you in and just kind of have you ponder this statement for a minute. You cannot fully Put your trust in Jesus until you take it off of yourself. What might you need to take off of yourself today to fully trust in the promises of God? And what I will tell you is this. In my experience, that is a continual daily process. Because so often do I want to trust in me. Do I want to trust in my ability, my intellect, my this or my that. Trust me to do it 
And how often has God said, no, take it off yourself and put it on me. And you know what that's called? Sanctification. Being set apart for God. Trusting him more and more each and every day. Verse five, he says, and again on the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. What today might be causing you to stumble in the wilderness? What might be causing you not to believe in Jesus? And let me turn it another way. Are the promises of God enough for you to continue trusting in him? Brothers and sisters, I'm going to just say this, and I'm going to kind of encourage you with this solidifying aspect that I pray will give you peace and encouragement in order to enter into God's rest. It is necessary to believe that when Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. That he completed all that was needed to forgive us of our sins and reconcile us back to God. And because of that, we can rejoice because that work there now truly is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question is, do you believe it? And are you walking in faith because of it? We're talking about entering into the rest of God and we've seen that we should not fall short or we're encouraged not to fall short of entering that rest just by hearing the gospel and not combining it with faith. And then we've been encouraged and exhorted to remember that the work is done. There's nothing else that needs to happen. Okay? We don't need to add to Jesus. We don't need to combine Jesus with Moses or the prophets or the angels or the great high priest. All we need is him, meaning Jesus, period. And so because the work is done, because there's no nothing else that is needed, we enter that rest by believing and trusting in Christ. But then notice this exhortation. Enter that rest today, as long as it's still called today. Don't put it off. The author continues on. We're going to turn right to uh, verse 6. And he says, It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. A reminder. There is still the opportunity to enter God's rest, but some didn't because they chose to disobey. And then again, we turn to verse 7, therefore, again, right? Whenever the therefore is therefore, you guys are getting sick of me saying this, but look and read why is the therefore, therefore. 
God again set a certain day, calling it today. Now, this is the time. Today. It's not a 24-hour period. It's the era. It's the time. Today. Come, enter the rest of God. When a long time later, he spoke through David and was said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is a time to enter into the rest of God. And then interestingly enough, he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, now watch this, right? Everybody did their thing, right? People of God came out, they were excited to leave, get away from Pharaoh, Moses was leading them, they whined and complained, things were bad, Moses didn't get to enter the promised land, 12 spies went, only Joshua and Caleb did, right? So Joshua and Caleb were the heroes, right? They won, they did it. But notice here, he even says this, watch this transition. For if Joshua had given them rest, right? It's completed. God would not have spoken later about another day. <laughs> That's not it. It's not just the promised land, meaning the land that was given. There's more to come. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Not just a day, not Sunday, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a today and a future. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. When do we truly rest from our own work? Not just on Sunday. When we enter God's kingdom. And so interestingly enough, one of the things that we need to remember is we can rejoice about this rest for today an entry into that rest still remains. Praise God that there is the ability to enter God's rest today through believing in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I'm also going to turn that question another way. What about tomorrow? Now I'm not saying that to scare, I'm just saying that to be real. The idea is, today the promise remains. Until what? Tomorrow in this analogy, and tomorrow is this, when God says, Jesus, it's finished. Go collect your bride. Go collect your church, those that have believed. And so lovingly, what I want to encourage you in is this. Why would you put off entering into the rest of God when you've heard it today for tomorrow when tomorrow is never promised? Interestingly enough, we look in these verses and we're speaking essentially about this and then he moves to Joshua and he says, look, Joshua did it. He gave them rest. But the problem was, even though they gave them rest, if that was it, if that was all that needed to be done, why did God 
move forward with another rest? Well, because that's not the ultimate rest. The ultimate rest is in Jesus. And so the other thing that you want to see, and interestingly enough, it's not a massive argument, but we've seen that Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Well, guess what? Right here, this argument, Jesus is better than Joshua. And so in it, what we see is this, that Jesus led people into a rest that is far greater than Joshua ever did. Or you could say it presently, Jesus leads people into a rest that Joshua never could. And so the idea that the author is saying is this, look, it isn't about geography. It's not entering the promised land. That was great, it was wonderful, but that's not what this is about. It also isn't about a day of the week, although we love Sundays, right? Can I ask you a question? How many of you are going to rest today? Anybody taking a nap after this? How many of you get disappointed when your rest gets interrupted? Okay? So the whole point is this. It's not about geography. It's not about resting on the seventh day. And it isn't about a season of life. Okay? The other point that he's saying is all the people were excited to like get into the promised land. And once they got to the promised land, they're like, whoop, yeah, we're in the promised land. And then after the promised land, all is well. How did it go for the people of God once they entered the promised land? Not very good, did it? And so often what we do is this. How many of us want to enter a season of life? Oh, once I raise the kids, once I establish my business, once I am retired, once I have enough, once my health is better, then I'll enter God's rest. Then it'll be okay. And the whole point that the author is making is, no, enter in God's rest today. Because it's yours for the taking. This whole thing is about Jesus and the finished work of the cross. And then interestingly enough, we turn and we see this and then we, we make this turn right in, sort of applicational turn in verse 11. And it says, let us therefore, because of all of this, because of what we've all just seen and what I've said, meaning the author, applicationally, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. And so to, to do the author justice, I'm going to ask you this question. Are you making every effort to enter that rest? Or are you just cruising along thinking that all is well, sitting in a lawn chair, enjoying the ride? What effort are you making? And he doesn't say, hey, let's just make a little bit of effort. Let's just kind of casually think about this. Let's just throw up a few prayers to God after we've baked our meal and before we eat it. 
Let's make every effort to enter that rest. Now, we're saved by grace through faith. It isn't works-based. That's not what's being said. But is your heart, is your life, is who you are making every effort daily to say, God, I want to enter your rest. I want you to be my Lord. Result, so that, let's make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. What are we doing to demonstrate our faith? What are we doing to demonstrate our faith to other people? Now, please recognize, this is an example. This doesn't mean that we, right, by doing stuff, move and have someone else be saved. God's the one who saves. But if we turn back and we think about this in the understanding of what's being written, if we're not making every effort, if people come and they look and they see this church and they see a bunch of people just kind of, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm here. I think there's a God and I'm not sure. We're singing something, but it's not that big of a deal. I might say a few things about Jesus here, but then I'll just throw them out the window when I walk out the door. Are people going to look and say there's something about that God that I want to know? And so in this, applicationally, we need to look at it and say, are, are, are we examining or are we exhibiting efforts to demonstrate our faith and our trust of God that will then bleed out to other individuals and they will say there is something different about that person. There is something different about that church. Because there, for whatever reason, they actually believe. They don't just sit and listen to some guy talk. They actually believe what's on the pages of this thing called the Bible. And they actually believe it's real. And they actually believe that God wrote it. And they actually believe that it instructs them in their living. And they actually mold their life to what's said in there. And they actually trust what's said in there. And when they go through something, and it's hard, like I just went through, rather than doing things on their own, they turn and they say, you know, what got me through was my belief in Jesus. It's real. That's what's being talked about in this passage. And so in this, in verse 11, the exhortation is simply this. May we be diligent to enter that rest and not fall short of it through disobedience or disbelief. And John Piper says this best. I think this is an idea of, this isn't a one and done. This is a daily process. The Christian life is a day-by-day, hour-by-hour trust in the promises of God to help us and guide us and take care of us and forgive us and to bring us into a future of holiness and a joy that will satisfy our hearts 
infinitely more than if we forsake him and put our trust in ourselves or in the promises of this world. You want rest? You want true rest in your soul, in who you are, in who you've been created to be. Believe in Jesus and then day by day, sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute, it might even be second by second. It is believing and trusting that God has forgiven us. He's bringing us into a future of holiness. And we will have a joy that the world cannot give, nor can it take it away. Why go back to the world? Why go back to Moses? Why go back to the angels? Why go back to Joshua? Why go back to the promises when you have the best of the best? Our Savior Jesus. And so the last thing I want to leave you with is this sort of summary statement. Brothers and sisters, those that are gathered here this morning, we enter rest by believing and continually trusting in Christ. That's how we get there. However, don't miss this. Rest is also a gift from God to be enjoyed. That's the now portion. And we are able to enjoy it, meaning rest, through continual faith and trust in Christ. Have you entered God's rest? And if so, are you resting in him? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for everyone that's gathered here. Father, we thank you for the author of Hebrews, we thank you for his logical arguments. Father, we thank you for how he has so uh, masterfully put together this idea and comparison to show to us that truly Jesus is the best of the best. And so, Father, this morning, wherever we might be in our walk with you, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be reminded indeed that we need nothing more that we have all that we need in you. Lord, no matter what might be going on in our lives right now, good, bad, or ugly, that when we've placed our faith and trust in you, our sins have been forgiven. We are no longer guilty of them. But Lord, not only are we no longer guilty of our sins, we are free from being enslaved to them. Father, remind us too that not only have we been freed from slavery, but Jesus continues on and it's not that we're left to wander around this world aimlessly, free, but with no direction. But rather, what we then have is the fact that because Christ died, we are adopted into the family of God. And as we read earlier in this book, because of that, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters in Christ. And the reason he is not ashamed is because he died on a cross to forgive us of our sin. And as Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord remind us again too that not only are we daughters or sons of the living king, 
that because we are daughters or son of the living king, we are co-heirs in his kingdom. Father, what a beautiful story it is. So in that, Lord, may we continue to turn to you. When the world around us ebbs and flows, when we're tempted not to believe, when we're tempted to leave our faith, Father, may we be reminded indeed that we have the best of the best in Jesus Christ. And Father, in that, may we enter your rest. And then, Father, may we find our rest in you. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen.